When you're starting to feel warm through your gear, you're talking about being in the same range as the fuel package is where it can light off. And you don't want that thing lighting off, right? This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me today for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives you all the information on a firefighting topic that you need in about 20 minutes. Now, before we start today, I'd like to ask for your help. You ever heard the phrase, Smart people learn from their mistakes, and really smart people learn from others' mistakes. Well, with that in mind, I'd like to ask you to tell me about your worst firefighting mistake. It doesn't have to be a long story, but it can be. It just has to have an aspect of teachability. If you have one of these stories and you'd like to tell it, email me. Scott at Code3Podcast.com and let me know. We'll set up a time to record it. Let's see how many stories we can get to help others learn and grow. Now, let's get started with today's topic. On this episode, we're once again talking with Phil Joes, the recognized expert on the art of reading smoke. As you may know, and as Phil likes to remind us, smoke is fuel. In most cases, it's just waiting for the right conditions to ignite. We'll discuss how to keep that from happening. Also on the agenda is a little talk about the relative merits of vertical ventilation. When do you go up to the roof and start opening it up? Phil says it's all about coordination with the engine crew. And finally, we'll talk about when it's time to change how things are done on your fire ground. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? Phil Joes retired from the Seattle Fire Department as a Deputy Chief of Operations and Shift Commander after 31 years of service. He's had the opportunity to work in the training division as a lieutenant, captain, and deputy chief. Phil's a popular seminar speaker around the country, a published author, and he also runs Ignition Point Training. And Phil Joes joins me now. Welcome back to Code 3. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the invite. You're always welcome. So by now, I'm thinking most firefighters have at least heard of the concept of reading smoke. So let's talk about the whys of smoke. Why is it fuel for a fire and not just an inert byproduct of that fire? Well, the what the way that fuel, so we start with the concept that smoke is fuel, right? And that's one of the things I drive home in the class. Smoke is fuel, smoke is fuel, smoke is fuel. So question is how how does that fuel get produced and the reality of the uh of fire and it's always been this way but it's certainly uh worse today or more significant today 
is that pyrolysis, the application of heat, causes uh, solids to break down into their base components. And, and, you know, half a century ago, that was wood, wool, and cotton. And today, that's plastic. And so, given the same amount of material, the same pounds of material, uh, plastic is just going to produce a significant amount more. Uh, there's a significantly uh, greater amount of energy contained within that plastic. And all of that energy gets re re released in the form of fuel when that object gets heated. And so in the modern fireground, whenever you're looking at smoke, you should really be thinking to yourself in the back of your mind that, that you're looking at fuel. So what are the typical chemical components of smoke nowadays? We generally talk about uh, smoke being made up of particulates, microscopic uh, pieces of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Then aerosols, which is liquid suspended in air, and then gases. So in the re-smoke process, you know, we break that down and use just a couple of exemplars, right? And so they're, the, the number, the quantity, the, the total number of products that are produced is going to be, you know, dependent on the fuel source, what type of uh, plastic, what type of glue, if that glue uh, is holding together wood like uh, OSB or even most of the furniture made today. You know, the, the variety of particulates, aerosols, and gases that get released is going to be significant. So the way we break that down, because there's there's really so many, right, uh, the way we break that down in the curriculum is to just talk about like a representative sampling. And to do that, we look at uh, four four basic products, I guess you would you would call it. Benzene, right? So I'll start at the top, right? The top two are going to be uh, carbon dioxide and hydrogen cyanide, right? So those are sort of the we call I call them the big dogs because uh, they're they're really present in vast quantities at every fire. They also happen to be particularly um, toxic in the way they interact with the human body and that sort of thing. They're also, um, all of these chemicals that I'm going to list for you uh, have uh, flammable ranges, right? So when we're looking at the flammable ranges and we're, and we're thinking about um, the fuel package that we're looking at, we start with the two um, carbon dioxide, hydrogen cyanide, right? So uh, they have very high ignition temperatures, you know, above a thousand degrees. But as we look at other ones, so a step down would be benzene, and benzene is, is present at all fires. Every single fire that's been studied, everything that I've looked at or talked to people about, benzene is present. It's also sort of ubiquitous in the fire service because it's a byproduct of uh, diesel combustion as well. But benzene, we're down in the, in the low 900s for an ignition temperature, and then we get all the way down to acrolein. And acrylene is another ubiquitous chemical uh, in the in the in the smoke column, and it's notable because its ignition temperature is 450 degrees. So 450 is definitely well within the range of most structure fires. Right, and so when you're um, the way you break this down to understand it visually is to uh, go back to your burn to learn, where you're in doing a fire behavior lecture, and you're and you're sort of watching that smoke and. And so in all cases, for it to change from smoke to fire, you need the right temperature and the right mix. And so we've just sort of talked about the temperatures. But when you're watching that 
smoke in the burn to learn environment, you see those little wisps of fire moving through that column. What you're seeing is really is a small pocket of right temperature, right mix. You know, the right amount of fuel at the right temperature with the right amount of air or oxygen that lights off. Uh, and it raises, right, it consumes that fuel and it raises the temperature of the column. And so you have to think about as we start to get into the 450 degree range, we're getting into a range um, for a smoke column or a fuel column where that column is set to light off. And so what we're trying to do in all cases is to keep that column of fuel, keep that column of smoke down below at least the 450 degree mark but uh, honestly scott ideally we're keeping it below even even the 175 to 200 degree mark uh, ideally we're not creating steam we're working in a relatively uh, moderate environment that's definitely attainable and sustainable for the average firefighter in the protective ensemble that we have today so as those temperatures start to reach 450 that's going to also exceed the capacity of your bunker gear to absorb energy, right? Absorb heat without you knowing it. So when you're starting to feel warm through your gear, you're talking about being in the same range as the fuel package is where it can light off. And you don't want that thing lighting off, right? So these are just um, sort of an understanding so that when you're working in that space, when you're, you're swimming in fuel, right? So you're swimming in smoke, you're swimming in fuel, which definitely is part of what we do and, and certainly not unpleasant for most firefighters, right? It's what, we're, it's what we're looking for the opportunity to take part in is I just, if you're going to be swimming in fuel, I want to make sure you're swimming in cold fuel and not hot fuel. Well, all right. So it's best that we keep it cool. But can these risks be mitigated by appropriate ventilation? Well, we want to understand when we add ventilation, and this is what all the NIST-UL stuff has shown, and certainly for any of your listeners who haven't been to the UL FSRI uh, website or taken advantage of that, uh, you know, the amount of training there is just off the chart. And so when we think about the fire environment, re remember I said right temperature, right mix. And we talked a little bit uh, there about making sure the temperature stays down. Now, the other piece of the puzzle is that you want to make, you want to understand that when you add air to the mix, right? So, so when you add ventilation, when you add air, the fire is going to grow. When it grows, it produces more fuel. Right. And every virtually, right, I won't say every, virtually every fire that your listeners are going to go to, that fire ground is is a ventilation controlled fire. Right. There's more fuel being produced than there is air available to burn. And so there you have the smoke, which is the byproduct. Right. It's the, it's the result of incomplete combustion, right? So more fuel is being produced than there is air available. And when you add air to that mix, the fire is going to light off. So one of the things that we did in the Seattle Fire Department when I was there is uh, make, make the uh, ventilation strategy, right? The, the, it says some version of the ventilation strategy is to limit ventilation until water application is imminent or achieved. Now, understand, so we're saying limit ventilation and then until it's imminent or achieved, which is what everybody would talk about as the coordinated 
ventilation. And uh, typically, what you're looking at there is the engine company. You can see or hear the engine company operating in the fire room. Now, that means that water application is achieved, right? And if you're in charge of ventilation or you're, say, the OV, um, you're free to start breaking windows at that point in time. The other option would be um, if you're a truck that's working alongside an engine, you should have sort of an intrinsic understanding of the timing that's necessary to, to hit the ventilation around the same time as the engine company is going to hit the fire. Now, that being said, late or no ventilation is actually preferable to early ventilation, right? So we're trying to control the temperature and we're trying to control the mix. The engine company controls the temperature and the ventilation profile controls the mix. And so we want to control that mix as much as we can, but recognize that we don't have affirmative control of ventilation because windows break, doors get opened. These things happen spontaneously on fire grounds. And, and, and so we just have to be understanding of what that ventilation is going to do and what's our role in it and to understand all of these aspects in the con. Uh, the context of operating at a fire scene. So would you say then that in your experience, you've seen too many examples of fire fire departments that are willing to move up to the roof and open it up too soon? That's where I would talk about the, that I would be looking to coordinate that process, right? So typically I'd say on buildings on, let's talk about residential structures, right? So if a residential structure is one story or if it's one and a half, but the access to the roof is basically at the one story level, then, uh, and the truck arrives commensurate with the engine and they both have the staffing necessary to do these tasks. Uh, we have the two tasks, one to stretch a line, the other one is to perform this ventilation. And then another consideration, but we won't talk about it now would be the priority to search. That truck company who arrives at the one story access to the roof commensurate with the engine has the real potential to get up there, cut a hole, and it might be, it's possible that it could be in advance of the engine. Now, typically, if you have a really good engine company that can operate with efficiency and the appropriate degree of aggressiveness and knowledge and all those sorts of things, that those two companies together are probably going to make their move at the same time. And those companies work together they get a sense of it. And so uh, one of the things that if if you're doing that, you're, you're probably going to be right. So you cut your first hole and you go, the ventilation um, is great. Like you're in the right spot. You're right over or near the fire room. You get a really good reaction, uh, but you're probably still uh, ventilation limited would be to uh, create another ventilation opening you would cut it and be ready, but you wouldn't actually louver it and punch the ceiling until you saw from looking at your first hole, you'd see visual evidence that water application is achieved, right? So you add that one piece of ventilation, then you have to delay. Um, you can start working on your next hole, but you wouldn't actually louver it and add more ventilation until you could see from the first hole that the engine company has made the firewood. Right. And then, of course, once once the engine companies knock the heck out of fire, you know, ventilation is really you can ventilate as much as you want, because what we're trying to do at that point, right, we've re re removed the risk of the fire itself. 
We're not producing any more smoke, or at least very limited smoke relative to when the fire was active. And we want to get that primary search done. Once the water is being applied to the fire, we want maximum ventilation. Then we get the primary search completed. And then we also then maybe want to back that down, that ventilation down a little bit um, until we complete the overhaul. Right. And so it's it's this constantly moving target, understanding that up front, we want to make sure that we're doing things in concert with the engine. Now, if you take that same set of companies and you put them in a situation where the truck company's got to make the second story, uh, it's probably not going to they're not going to make it to the roof and cut a hole. My experience is that you can be pretty good as a truck, but if that engine's moving, uh, you're hard pressed to get to the to the roof of a two story before they can be up on floor two. But if you're making it that fast, you still have the same requirements to sort of hold off on that ventilation or time that ventilation and make sure that ventilation is not early. Late ventilation is superior to early ventilation. And that's something I feel pretty strongly about, and I think that the evidence demonstrates is correct. Let me take a little tangent here. Every time this topic comes up online, I see somebody from a European fire agency say, why are you Americans in such a hurry to cut holes in the roof? Do they know something we don't know, or what? what's behind that? Well, um, there's a lot of things I think Scott to play to that. One is... And this is why all knowledge is local when it comes to firefighting. You know, if you're if you're fighting fire in Mason reconstruction that was built in the 400s, you're in a completely different kind of environment than, than we are where I'm sitting in my office looking out a bunch of, you know, three-story lightweight OSB houses, right? Um, they're just not the same. Uh, which is one of the reasons why they can somewhat effectively use very low f- water flow rates because they have very tight compartments. Typically in the United States, we don't have that tight of compartments. And so that's why we tend to use copious volumes of water. And I'm a fan of copious water, right? I, I think there's really almost no substitute in my experience for applying large volumes of water to the fire as fast as possible. And so there's even places in the U.S., Scott, where they just don't go to the roof. And they, they just, if your organization, based on the way that your staffing model is, based on the way that you deploy, um, the, your history, your culture, if that's, if if you find that vertical ventilation does not work for you, then you should quit doing it. Conversely, if it is working for you, right, if you find it effective, then you should use it. And you should figure out, in fact, you're uh, essentially compelled to use it. And in both cases, what you should be doing is systematically looking at the way that you are doing the business of firefighting, the craft of firefighting. And in every case, looking at what just happened, projecting what's going to happen next time, and looking to see if there's there's one, if we can make it 1% better for those citizens who, who called us, then we, we have that responsibility. So I, I don't think it's a matter of, I, I never look at these things as a matter of one thing being superior or wrong or these things, you know, like, let's see how it works, right? Let's evaluate how it works. And the fact is that in, in much of the United States, vertical ventilation is an effective tactic. Now, 
It may not be effective in Europe, but if it's not effective there, don't do it. It may not be effective in in some places in the U.S. because if you if you are arriving on scene with you know four people, you probably don't have the resources to affect vertical ventilation, right? You're probably better off spending all of that attention, you know, whatever resources you have, dedicate those to getting that first line in operation as fast as possible and knocking the heck out of that fire. Then we can worry about these other things, right? And so. You know the the idea that we're we're battling about these things. I, I there to me, there's really no reason to battle. If you're doing things as if you're doing things the best way possible for the citizens that you're sworn to protect, then you're doing the right thing. I may not understand it, which means I I'm, I'm ignorant. Educate me. Let me know how it works. Then maybe I have a way to take something back to my organization and try something new. Who knows if it'll work for us, right? Maybe it will, and then may, we can make the adjustment. As long as the reason isn't, we've always done it this way. Absolutely. And that's, you know, the the idea of we've always done it that way. I've never, like, it makes me laugh, Scott, because one of the things that was sort of, uh, I I think, uh, maybe a talking point or at least an idea that I came away with from FDIC this year, as I have many other years, is that a lot of the firefighters I talked to there are changed. They are change agents. They they want to try something new. And not everything new is better. That's a given, right? That not everything new is better. But uh when you're when you're working within a system that won't even listen or won't even try, that that's a very difficult place to be if if you can if you're seeing things that you think make can make it more likely that the citizen that on the fire that you go to tonight is going to survive. You just feel compelled to speak out. And uh, in organizations that allow that and, and foster that, I think, you know, move the needle substantially. And then everybody's familiar with an organization, or even not the whole organization, maybe just a company or maybe just a battalion that because of leadership is uninterested in, in exploring improvement. It's, it's very challenging. A lot of those change agents, a lot of those people who are battling the system, asking the whys, like pressing the buttons, like really they end up at FDIC, Scott, uh, because they want to know what's next. They want to know what's new. They want, they're, they're so interested in being excellent because that's the oath that they took that uh, they seek out other people who want to be excellent and then they want to spend time with those people. And, and that's really what uh, fire training podcasts like yours, um, all of these resources that are available, if they come with that sort of mindset that, hey, we're all here to learn. And, you know, every time I teach a class, I learn something. And uh, I always thank the students for being there because without without that possibility of learning, you know, I would honestly, Scott, I would move on to the next thing. If I didn't feel like I was learning, shaping, growing, and providing other people the opportunity to do so, I would probably move on to some other endeavor. And I think uh, that's true of a lot of people in the fire service. All right, we'll leave it there. Phil Jones, thanks for talking with me today on Code 3. Sounds good, Scott. Thanks for having me. And as always, uh, keep them safe out there. And there's more about reading smoke, including video, on our website at co3podcast.com slash smoke is fuel.
Make it all one word, smoke is fuel. Hey, have you signed up for our newsletter yet? It's a weekly email of what we have coming up in the news edition of the show. Did I mention that it's free? No, I didn't, but it is, it's free. And did I mention that no spam comes with it? Well, that's true, too. We never sell your address to anyone else. Just go to Code3Podcast.com slash newsletter to sign up. Trust me, you'll love it. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.